Hi, this is Mike Adams. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, it's Adams on Agriculture. Produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Adams on Agriculture. Thank you so much for joining us today. Great to have you with us and letting us be part of your day. We appreciate it. Here's what we're going to be talking about today. There's an effort in the state of Minnesota to raise the minimum biofuel content in gasoline in that state up to 15%. And we'll talk with Brian Thalman with the Minnesota Corn Growers and a member of the Governor's uh, Council on Biofuels. We will talk about that effort, where it's at, and what it would mean for agriculture in that state and get the very latest on that effort. Also, we'll talk markets today with Steve Nicholson with Robo AgriFinance, and we'll talk with Kurt Kavarik with the National Biodiesel Board. More reaction to EPA's decision to now support the 10th Circuit Court ruling on small refinery exemption waivers, uh, those waivers to the RFS, that about-face from EPA that we talked about yesterday. We'll get reaction from the National Biodiesel Board today. But let's start things off with the news. Jerry Hagstrom with the Hagstrom Report joins us. And Jerry, as expected, Tom Vilsack uh, easily was confirmed as the next Secretary of Agriculture. Indeed, he was by a huge vote, 92 to 7, uh, with six, six Republicans voting against him and Bernie Sanders, the independent from, uh, from Vermont. Uh, and today, or tonight, uh, he will be sworn in by Vice President Kamala Harris uh, around 6 p.m., uh, and so we expect him to be on the job tomorrow. Whether that will mean he's actually physically present in the Agriculture Department or working virtually, we don't know yet, but he'll be on the job. He's got a big to-do list uh, right off the bat, doesn't he? Well, he certainly does. And, of course, the first issue is to address uh, COVID uh, in, the, in rural America. Uh, there are many, uh, many issues there. The, perhaps the most sensitive is, is the inoculation of the workers in the meat plants, and you could even say in the grocery stores. Um, and, uh, you know, it just, kind of, it just kind of goes on from that. And he has some decisions to make on how to use some of the funding that's been put in his authority at USDA on COVID issues such as that. Well, yes, uh, I think the, that the biggest uh, uh, perhaps complaint about the Biden administration so far uh, has been the decision to uh, not to issue the CFAP three. Uh, money to put that on hold, although, you know, putting a program like that on hold uh, that was put in late in the, in the previous administration is something that is commonly done by new administrations coming in. But he is definitely under pressure to make those decisions quickly. Uh, and, of course, the Democrats have complained that some of the decisions about how people got, who got money in the past uh, were not fair. So it'll be interesting to see if he makes any changes uh, and and how he spends the money that had not been allocated by the Trump administration before it left office. Part of the debate going on now, uh, as Congress weighs another uh, stimulus bill, many are 
pointing out that a lot of money from previous stimulus packages has not yet been spent. That That is part of the uh, the debate going on now, whether another one should be passed. Well, that's true. Uh, but I don't think that's so true in uh, in agriculture. I think in the agriculture provisions, the money has pretty much been spent, except, of course, for the allocation of this last uh, uh, bit of money under the CFAP, uh, CFAP 3. Uh, uh, and it looks like that bill is going to go through, even if it's only on Democratic votes. The House is now set to vote on the COVID package on, uh, 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 on Friday. Uh, and, of course, from an agriculture standpoint, the big issues in there are money for improving the, the food supply chain, uh, debt relief for minority farmers, uh, socially disadvantaged farmers, uh, and a, an extension of the increase in the SNAP benefits uh, so that low-income people would get 15% more money uh, at least through September. More confirmation votes coming. Not all will be as uh, smooth as the one for Vilsack. No, uh, no, they won't be. Um, it looks like the um, the nominee for the head of o- Office of Management and Budget is in trouble uh, uh, because Senator uh, Manchin from West Virginia won't support her, and neither neither will Susan Collins, a Republican from uh, from Maine. Um, we still don't have a date for a confirmation hearing on Michael Regan to head the EPA, although it looks likely that he would uh, that he will be. Uh, confirmed. Well, as expected, the reaction from the ag community has been very supportive of Tom Vilsack returning to USDA. Oh, yes. Um, I I ran a story this morning with reactions, and but it's so interesting. People also talk about what their expectations are, and some, some leaders talk about getting that CFAP money out. Others talk about him addressing climate change. Others say that he has to address the racial issues at USDA, both in the agency and in the dealings with, with uh, black farmers and, and Hispanic and Native American farmers. Uh, but I think that there's just a lot of relief that Bill Sack is coming back, that he knows the department, he knows how to manage it. And uh, so the expectations of a good performance from him are quite high. And sometimes it's hard to live up to expectations. The honeymoon lasts until you start making decisions, right? And then if someone doesn't like it, then the honeymoon can be over. Well, yes, and I think the biggest decision here is going to be about whether Vilsack thinks that USDA can use the Commodity Credit Corporation to address climate change issues without getting permission from Congress. Um, And uh, if that turns out not to be true, whether Congress will agree to the use of the CCC. The Republicans are questioning whether he has the authority to use it uh, uh, for, uh, for the climate change program. Um, uh, and so we will, we will just, uh, even that's, and that's even though uh, the Secretary Perdue used it uh, to provide COVID aid, which was unprecedented. So we'll just have to see how that goes and whether it's simply a partisan battle and has to be decided by lawyers or whether Congress will uh, actually act in this area. Yeah, we will see. Meanwhile, though, the bipartisan support for Vilsack should help uh, get some things done, I would think, at least initially. Oh, yes. I think, uh, uh, I think he, you know, he does have strong bipartisan support, 
those uh, six Republicans who voted against him uh, are not on the are, they're not on the Senate Ag Committee. They have many different reasons, uh, ideological and and uh, and for their own personal politics that they wanted to vote against a, a Biden nominee. So uh, I, I wouldn't take their opposition too seriously. And even Bernie Sanders has said that Vilsack is uh, he thinks he's a good man. Uh, you know, but I think Sanders just wants to make a point that he wants his issues, uh, his issues dealt with, and he wants to take a strong stand with the Biden administration. All right, Jerry, appreciate the report. Thanks a lot. Okay, talk to you again soon. Take care. Jerry Hagstrom with the Hagstrom Report. Up next, we'll look at the effort in Minnesota to raise that state's percentage of biofuels in their gasoline up to 15 percent we'll get the latest next on aoa hi this is mike adams you're listening to aoa adams on agriculture don't go away more adams on agriculture coming right up Recently on Adams on Agriculture, we're talking with Justin Gilpin, CEO of Kansas Wheat. Last time we talked, you brought up some of those decisions that farmers will have to make when it comes to uh, what to plant. So now this winter weather and the impact on the wheat crop, that could influence those decisions, as you said, even more. Well, it certainly will. You know, we had just before this cold weather event, we were reaching points in southwest Kansas and feedlot country where corn and wheat were actually near even money for cash prices. So you had feedlots that were making decisions that were going with beginning to put wheat into their feed rations because corn basis was so strong in some of these countries. We were seeing wheat moving into the Texas panhandle and the feedlot. And when you have prices like this where farmers can lock in not just for this crop year but for next crop year on some of these real crop prices, and if they're able to lock in some of their other input prices, it's certainly attractive for producers and it's really could affect what happens with our overall wheat acres and potential carryout projections. For the information important to rural America, join us on Adams on Agriculture. The landscape of media has changed and people are more skeptical than ever about where they get their news and information. While major news outlets show decreasing credibility, your local farm radio station still shows strong marks. In a recent survey, farmers rated information from their farm broadcasters as almost twice as reliable as major news outlets. Farm Radio continues to be transparent, honest, and trustworthy. This message brought to you by the National Association of Farm Broadcasting. Egg retailers, co-ops, and custom applicators have enormous productivity requirements. With thousands of acres of fertilizer to apply in a short window of time, they don't have time to make mistakes in the field. Intelligent Ag's Recon SpreadSense is the first ag technology that monitors the flow of product on floaters. The technology identifies flow issues to avoid streaks in the field that can hurt yield potential. Reduce the risk of misapplication by investing in Recon SpreadSense. Never doubt what you're putting out. Visit IntelligentAg.com to learn more. You may not realize how important three letters can be. For a patient who needs type A, B, or O blood, these letters can mean life. But there simply aren't enough people giving blood. Every two seconds, someone in the U.S. needs it. But only about 3% of the population donates. Without more donors, hospitals may not have the blood needed to save lives. That's why the American Red Cross needs people to help restore the A's, B's, and O's that are depleting each day. When you make your appointment to donate blood at redcrossblood.org forward slash missing types, you can help give strength to kids 
kids, parents, and grandparents who face life and death challenges. From cancer patients to accident survivors waiting for critical surgeries, your generosity can give someone more life. Don't wait until the letters A, B, and O are missing from hospital shelves. You are the missing type patients need. Visit redcrossblood.org forward slash missing types or call 1-800-RED-CROSS to make your donation appointment today. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. A bill has been introduced in the state of Minnesota to boost that state's minimum biofuel content in gasoline to 15%. Joining us now to talk about it is Brian Thalman with the Minnesota Corn Growers and a member of the Governor's Council on Biofuels. Brian, thanks for joining us. Tell us a little bit more about this bill and this effort to raise the uh, biofuels content in your gasoline in the state of Minnesota. I'll do that. Good morning. We are really excited. Our top priority here, the Minnesota Corn Growers, is to raise the standard from 10 to 15 percent. We have a bill that was introduced in the House, uh, in the Senate last week, and there's similar language being introduced this week in the Minnesota Senate. The goal of the bill is to raise the standard, so rather than pulling up to a pump and having E10, it'll be E15 at all stations throughout the state. I remember when your state made the move to require 10% ethanol, and your state was really a leader in in supporting biofuels and promoting biofuels. Uh, What is the um, level of support for this move to increase to 15%? Do you have support? Do you have bipartisan support in your legislature? We really do. We had virtual visits uh, yesterday, uh, day on the hill visits, and so we met with the uh, the top uh, officials, leaders in both the House and Senate on the minority and majority side also had a meeting again with our governor yesterday morning and there is wide support. The largest challenge that is out there would be the concerns over infrastructure and we've been reminded that when Minnesota took the lead 20 or 30 years ago to be the first state to become E10 uh, standard some of the same concerns were brought up back then, and it's concerns that we're very well aware of, but in the language that we're looking at, uh, the bill has an exemption for locations that sell under 300,000 gallons a year from complying with a new standard immediately, but those stations are still eligible to apply for grant funding or financial assistance from the state and federal level to update or replace obsolete equipment. As a side note, if we're concerned about some equipment that's that's older and questionable, it probably isn't set uh, to be used for, for any gasoline. If it's something that's 40 or 50 years old, it needs to be looked at being replaced. Any equipment put in the last 30 years in general is approved. And, you know, we're looking at tanks and fittings and so on. And um, as more studies are done, there's more accurate numbers being calculated and, um, PCA and so on, figure out exactly where improvements need to be made, and there'll be a time to get those updates made, and at that point we can 
to move forward with a new standard is our is our goal. Well, I know you had Ron Lamberty, Senior Vice President with the American Coalition for Ethanol, testify recently about uh, this issue, and and I think uh, hopefully cleared up any misconceptions or m- miscommunications on this topic, and probably uh, helped ease some concerns along the way that uh, this isn't that big of a hurdle that uh, it can be this this uh, change can be made the the uh, infrastructure can handle it. Absolutely. Ron's work uh, through American Coalition for Ethanol has been tremendous. The database that they have is updated continually as more information becomes available, but uh, using that information, uh, station is going to be able to verify what they have as long as they've got the the model numbers and, and so on of the equipment that they have, and, and the vast majority of stations surely have that information. So, again, like you say, it's all hurdles we can't overcome, but the, uh, the fuel marketers are putting it up as a big red flag. But once we get drilled down to the exact things that need to be changed, a station may not to rip, need to rip out all their tanks and replace all the pumping and hoses. Maybe they have to change a couple of fittings, or maybe they have to just change the above-ground infrastructure. Um, there's two main pump companies in the country, and I'm also involved and currently on the National Corn Growers Board, but I've been on the national ethanol team the last four years. One of our projects at the national level was to work a contract out with Wayne Fueling Systems. There's over 60,000 new fuel dispensers on the market now that are fully E25 compatible. So all new dispensers are, and again, as equipment gets older and obsolete and becoming replaced, everything is being updated to levels above E15. So E15 should be the easy step. We're looking at ways uh, the next 10 years to get to levels beyond that. We're talking with Brian Thalman with the Minnesota Corn Growers. And Brian, at a time when the push is on for climate uh, policy and cleaning the air and the environment, I mean, this fits right in because uh, there are the environmental benefits of the use of ethanol in our fuel supply, there are a lot of benefits that you can point to, including uh, reducing those tailpipe emissions. Exactly. You know, I would say a higher blend of ethanol in the fuel benefits not only corn farmers, but, but all Minnesotans, because we're looking at a Minnesota plan or, or all citizens, you know, the consumers are getting a higher octane fuel at a lower price while significantly reducing those tailpipe emissions. And you look at, you know, 9 out of 10 vehicles on the road today are approved to use E15 by the EPA. And automakers provide full warranty coverage for more than 93% of the vehicles on the road today. So we're on the, on the road to success here. My time with the Biofuels Council, our governor had a 15-member council that uh, we attempted to meet in person last year, and, and COVID changed that. So we met virtually uh, a dozen or more times, and, and we put together you know, a whole set of directions. And actually the bill that was introduced last week in the House was the Minnesota Corn Growers' uh, back bill. The bill coming in the Senate today in Minnesota is out of our biofuels uh, council recommendations, and that is a governor's uh, prepared bill, which again is similar, but actually it does uh, put the E15 standard in place uh, for next year, but talks about going to E25 in uh, by the year 2030 or 2031. So it's it's setting another bar out there. So we have we've got some targets to work for. So you sound optimistic of being able to get this passed. 
I am. You have to remain optimistic, but, you know, there's everybody has a concern, and as farmers, we look at you know, the legacy we leave. We've got farms in our area that are 100 to 100, and our farm's 143 years old from the, the first 80 acres that was settled by my uh, great-great-grandfather. We always want to make things better and leave it better for the next generation. And we're so proud of the fact, the benefits that we can get from biofuels, and we want to see as biofuels increased in use, we will be able, be able to improve the environment starting tomorrow. And as we look at, you know, there's going to be some more electric vehicles and so on in the future, and those benefits uh, may be realized 10 or 20 or 30 years down the road, biofuels can make a change tomorrow and every day thereafter. And we need to have biofuels be a strong part of this movement to uh, to improve uh, the environment and, and the consumer's benefit again in the pocketbook and that usually is a way people like to vote is with their pocketbook so having a, a cheaper fuel at the pump is going to be a, a win-win as well is there any is there any organized opposition to the bill uh petroleum association refiners hmm. um we introduced the bill last year we had hearings in the house and senate and then COVID hit and came to a stop but the amount of lobbyists that flocked upon minnesota was unbelievable. So as much as we would like to see ethanol partnering with the oil industry and building a future long-term market for internal combustion engines, that just doesn't seem to be happening. They're going to fight tooth and nail for every percent of space in that fuel tank. The biofuels industry is going to do the same. We just we want to have access to the fuel tank and, and uh, you know, by adding a, a little higher percent of ethanol, we're going to improve every gallon in that tank it's not just the extra ethanol we add so uh we hope that we can can come together and and uh you know protect the internal combustion engine market for many years to come by helping the entire product become cleaner but that's the biggest struggle by far yeah you would think the oil industry would be looking for you as an ally instead of an opponent but uh, they just don't seem to uh, see it that way but uh your state has been a real leader in this area going first to the E10 uh, level several years ago, and now uh, the move to E15. We wish you the best, uh, uh, best of luck on this, Brian, and hope to talk with you again soon about its passage. Thanks for being with us. You're welcome. Thank you. All right, take care. Brian Thalman with the Minnesota Corn Growers and a member of the Governor's Council on Biofuels there in the state of Minnesota as that state uh, trying to get a bill passed that would raise their minimum level of biofuels in their gasoline supply in the state from the current 10% up to 15%. We'll keep you updated on that. All right, up next, we talk markets with Steve Nicholson with Robo AgriFinance. You're listening to AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. What kitchen gadget is so essential to food safety that no home should be without it? I'm registered dietitian nutritionist Toby Smithson. A food thermometer isn't just for meat and poultry. It will help you avoid food poisoning from egg dishes, casseroles, and leftovers by ensuring they're fully cooked by reaching a safe minimum internal temperature. Heat leftovers and casseroles to at least 165 degrees and egg dishes to at least 160 degrees. You'll find more food safety tips at homefoodsafety.org. 
Farmers and operators don't always have to get a new piece of machinery to get state-of-the-art performance. Intelligent Ag was built by farmers and innovators who deliver technologies to help you get the most out of your ag equipment, improve performance, and high return on investment. We offer the industry's most reliable flow monitoring and selection control solutions for air seeders and fertilizer floaters. The next time you're thinking about upgrading your equipment, consider Intelligent Ag. You're listening to Adams on Agriculture for the American Ag Network. I'm Kirsten Rall. While corn appears to be more of a follower, it is higher again Wednesday morning, looking for a third straight higher close. The focus is still on South American weather where southern Brazil and Argentina are facing a few weeks of warmth and dryness. Heavy rains again in Mato Grosso have stalled soy harvest and corn planting. The soy complex is again gaining ground this morning. On the Board of Trade, March soybeans trading 12 and 3 quarters higher at 14, 18 and three quarters. The May contract up 12 at 14.20 and a half cent. March corn trading four and a fraction higher at 5.58. The May contract gaining three and a fraction of a cent at 5.55 and three quarters. For the wheat, Chicago wheat March trading 16 and a half cent higher at 8.62 and a fraction. Kansas City wheat March up 12 at 6.53. Minneapolis spring wheat March up nine at 6.45. The May contract up 10 at 6.58. Cattle futures took a hit Tuesday with April leaving the biggest dent over the past week. April may have already played its seasonal strength card and now needs to move closer to cash. Hogs may be in the similar situation, coupled with future contracts that are extremely overbought. The common factor providing support is strong demand. April lean hogs trading $1.17 higher at $87.60. The May contract up $87 at $89.72. For feeders, the March contract up $0.40 cents at $138.97. The April contract up $0.20 cents at $140. 4280 for live cattle the April contract gaining 92 cents at 12210 the June contract up 25 at 11937 in cash cattle country packer inquiry is limited this morning it is looking like significant trade volume may possibly be delayed until Thursday or later asking prices are around $116 in the south and not yet established in the north you're listening to Adams on Agriculture for the American Ag Network I'm Kirsten Rawl do you know how to keep food safe at home? Clean, separate, cook, and chill. The easy lessons of clean, separate, cook, and chill will help you protect your family and be food safe. Let's talk about how to separate. First, use different cutting boards for meat, poultry, seafood, and veggies. Raw meat should never touch food that won't be cooked. Then, always keep raw meat, poultry, seafood, and their juices away from other foods in the shopping cart. And store raw meat, poultry, and seafood in a container or on a plate in the fridge so juices won't drip on other foods. Food safety risks at home are more common than most people think. The USDA is your partner in being food safe. Clean, separate, cook, and chill. For more information, visit BeFoodSafe.gov or call 1-888-MP-HOTLINE. Hi, this is Mike Adams. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. Well, in a short period of time, we've gone from record-breaking cold to a nice warm-up, and 
kind of has people thinking about uh, going to the fields uh, before long. That gets us thinking about planning time. Let's talk about it with Steve Nicholson, Grain and Oil Seeds Analyst with Bravo Agrofinance. Steve, good to talk with you again. What would you think of USDA's acres projections for this year? Yeah, good morning, Mike. Uh, I think they're I we're I think they're right spot on to be honest. Um, when we look at you know when we did our ten year baseline just actually a couple weeks before USDA came out, we were about a million acres short uh, of what their total corn and soybean. I think they're at 182 and we're at 181 million for corn and soybeans combined. So I, I think they're right on. I mean, you look at the margins um, for corn and soybeans across the heart of the corn belt. There is there's there's every incentive for producers to go out there and plant as many acres as they possibly can. Um, but as we always say, it's that's a that's a good thing because the margins are there. But you also need to execute against that plan on the marketing side and lock those margins in now, rather than you know rather than to wait until you get the full crop in the bin and say, okay, now now I can market because I know what I have. But yeah, I think USDA is is spot on. Obviously, we'll see what mark, mark, uh, March intentions. Um, there is always surprises in that report, and I think we have to be ready for that. Um, but it's going to be, you know, the thing that you that I think that's really interesting on the acreage fight this year, if you have it, is that you've got all commodities hitting on all cylinders in the sense of you've got wheat prices above $6. Obviously, corn and soybeans are at high levels. You've got cotton, you know, starting to tap on that buck uh, buck uh, wind uh, door which is you know pretty remarkable you've got sorghum or milo continuing to you know trade at a, a very hefty premium to corn so there's a lot of you know a lot of commodities who are buying for acres and so it it's going to be really interesting to see how that all gets divvied up and you know i hate to put people in winners or crops into winter and losers but it's you know who ends up with the most you know most acres is going to be a really interesting uh, part of the market to watch this spring and what a change this is. I've, I've mentioned this several times that n- not that long ago, a report like we heard from the USDA Outlook Forum last week with yep. the increase in acres, that would have been a bearish report, but not these days. No, that's right. I mean, that's a really good point, Mike. I mean, you just, if we had seen that, the market would have gone, oh my gosh, and just, you know, we would have sold it off. Um, but the market reacted and took that in stride very easily. Um, and that, that to me is a very, um, that, that there's two things that, that strike me. One is that tells you of a very strong market that's able to absorb that kind of, and I'm going to put in quotes, bearish news, um, and still go up. Um, and at the same time, it gives you some indication, uh, kind of on the same level is that you have a tremendous amount of demand. You know, that demand base is so strong and that whether it's here whether it's you know overseas, you know the demand is there. I, just, just uh, we were, I was just on another call and we were talking about just to kind of break into animal protein. But if you look at 2020, we had record demand for beef, pork, and poultry products and meat cuts uh, in 2020 in the middle of a pandemic in the middle of a recession. And you have to wonder, wow, that's you know if you had said that at the beginning, you know, a year ago, people would have said you were absolutely nuts. But the fact is people are eating um, and that the demand for food is good. And that's, that's keeping markets well supported um, at this point in time. We're talking with Steve Nicholson with Robo Agrofinance. Steve, what are you hearing in South America? What are your people telling you there? Yeah, it, it's a, it's a mixed bag down there. I mean, you hear, 
it's raining in Mato Grosso, as, as you said, right before we came on the air this morning. You know, this crop has been a little bit more difficult to get out, I think, than what was anticipated. Although I saw reports this morning, and our analyst in, in uh, Brazil has been saying, you know, 130 million metric ton plus soybean crop. I noticed there was some private estimates out of Brazil, you know, right at 130 million. And, and I think we have to kind of put that in perspective a little bit. Kind of goes back to your question, you know, your, your previous question is the demands there for beans. That is record production in Brazil. So, I, you know, let's not get carried away that this is a disaster because it's not. But the demand is there for beans. And the fact is that Brazil, you know, their pipeline of beans is going to be like our pipeline at the end of August, you know, empty. And so they've got to both, you know, restock their stocks if you have it on beans. And at the same time, um, you know, they're going to pick up the Chinese business, which continues to continues to grow. You know, I think the other thing is the big worry now is the second Suprina corn crop in Brazil. As we talked before, you know, that crop is going to be, you know, continues to get delayed because of delays in harvest. That just puts it into a time of year where yields um, aren't going to be, as, yield potential is just not going to be there. So that crop, you know, I would say kind of gets a little smaller as each day passes, um, which is kind of good, is good news for U.S. Is US corn producers because it just extends our export business uh, a little bit farther deeper into our crop year uh, when a time of year when we wouldn't expect that so that's supporting the corn market as well so i it it's not a disaster down there but it, it's the little things that just aren't going correct that's that's helping be supporting these markets overall so the focus now is on their weather but soon it'll be on our weather exactly and you know it's you know we continue and i think we have to be you know i I, you know, it's hard to forecast spring weather. We never know. I mean, like you said off the top, a week ago we could not get enough clothes to stay warm or enough natural gas to keep our houses warm. And now you come to this week, and here in St. Louis it was almost 70 degrees yesterday after, you know, minus, you know, minus temperatures a week ago. So a lot of volatility in the weather, and I think that will be the theme as we go forward. Um, you look at the drought in the western part of the United States, and I'll say kind of draw that line through kind of right through the center of Kansas West. It's still very dry. Uh, the wheat crop in northwestern Kansas and the panhandle of Texas is still is still dry. You know, there are concerns about cattle, of course, in that part of the world, both because of the cold, cold temperatures and now, you know, pasture conditions. Um, you know, they're grazing a lot more wheat, about 7% more wheat grazing this year than a year ago. So I think you do have to be concerned about the weather. You know, the snow that we've gotten in across the Corn Belt is, is a good sign. At least there's moisture going to be available to the ground. Uh, but we do need to restock those that subsoil moisture coming into spring. Um, you know, I, I think we have to, and markets are going to be a little sensitive to that, particularly when you look at a bean market and a corn market where it's, you know, beans in particular are very tight. I wouldn't say corn is overly tight, but the fact is if you get, the good news is going to have the acres as a cushion, but if you get any sort of weather um, that is going to be yield uh, yield robbing, you know that will be very supportive of markets in the longer term. So I think something we have to be concerned about um, at this time is the weather situation and what's the moisture situation going into spring and the growing season. One thing about it, though, conditions would seem to be more favorable for those prevent plant acres to come back into production. Exactly. Um, because those acres, as we well know, you know, they're not. There was no moisture used out of them because you didn't have a crop on them last year. Um, people are going to be, um, 
you know, they're going to get in the fields early. You know, I, I think of Illinois, boy, I can't think of what year it was, but I remember it was like the first of April, that first week of April, people planting corn, you know, in central Illinois or up there, you know, north around Lincoln. Um, and I suspect this year, if the weather is cooperative at all, and we get a lot of field work done, that people are going to get out there and plant every acre they can absolutely plant and prevent plant acres will be, will be part of that mix this year. And that's, and that's where some of the acres are going to come. I mean, we just, you know, we've had a couple tough years, particularly 19 was a very tough year on prevent plant acres. Um, but that's what we, that's what we're going to see. That's where those acres are going to come. Cause they're really, when you think about it, we don't have a lot of extra acres just lying around, you know, CRP is, is, is not going away, but it's certainly not the acres we saw 35, 36 million acres, you know, several years ago. So we need those prevent plant acres this year, just because of what the demand side looks like. What's your feel of how much grain is moving in the country right now, as far as uh, those still having some crop to sell, uh, actually uh, moving it, yeah. or are they holding on to it? Well, I think it, I think they've moved a lot of grain. Uh, we were I was on a call just before we came on the air, and and you know anecdotally, it, it appears that you know most of the beans are out of the country. Uh, the market is telling you both corn and soybeans that you need to get rid of them because you know you're at an inverse, so we're not going to pay you to hold on to them. Um, and it's interesting, this was a comment out of northern Illinois. So this is good corn growing area. Um, there's not much corn left in the country up there. And I think that's true of pretty much across the corn. But when you look at basis levels, you look at the southern plains where they're, you know, it's a corn deficit area. You know, they're buck, buck and a 10, buck 20 over uh, rail into there. Uh, so that tells you that it's harder to find corn uh, around the corn belt that is available, ready to move. And it's, it's got, it's in pretty strong hands, whether I don't, as I say, it could be in farmer hands and it could be in, in you know, commercial hands. But I think a lot of it's moved already uh, because the market dictated that and, and people wanted to get some debt paid down, wanted to get needed some cash to get input paid for this year. Uh, it was their advantage to do that. And so I think that's the thing that's to be very interesting going into the summer that will be supported grain. You know, a lot of this grain is moved. It's going to be hard to find that grain. And so basis levels will be doing a lot more work as we move forward to coax grain out of the country. And so that will be the opportunity for folks who maybe have a little grain or have grain that they've, they've sold on the board but haven't priced it. Basis levels will do the work to get it out, and that will be, be to your advantage. Pick up a few more, yep. you know, a few more nickels or a few more shillings in your pocket. A lot of good opportunities, some big decisions to make, that's Absolutely. for sure. Steve, thanks a lot. Good to talk with you. Thanks, Mike. Good to talk to you as always. Take care. Take you too. Steve Nicholson, grain and oil seeds analyst for Robo AgriFinance. Up next, the biodiesel industry's reaction to EPA's announcement this week that they will now support the Tenth Circuit Court ruling on small refinery exemptions. We'll talk with Kurt Kabarik with the National Biodiesel Board next on AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. Hey, Dad, your prescription will be ready in just a minute. Hey, Dad, your laundry will be ready in just a minute. Dad, your lunch will be ready in just a minute. Hey, honey, why don't you take a minute? When you help care for a loved one, you give them as much time as you can making sure they're safe and comfortable. But it's just as important that you take some time for yourself. 
At AARP, we can help with information and useful tips on how you can maintain a healthy life balance, care for your own physical and mental well-being, and manage the challenges of caring for a loved one. Because the better care you take of yourself, the better care you can provide for your loved one. Thanks, Dad. Thank you. You're there for them. We're here for you. Find free care guides to support you and your loved one at aarp.org caregiving. That's aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. The Alzheimer's Association and the Ad Council present the story of Cynthia and Ed. My mother was always very active and independent, and she was familiar with her neighborhood. But one day, out of the blue, she stopped at the stop sign for much longer than usual. And uh, she didn't know whether she should go forward or, or turn or just stay at the stop sign. She wasn't even really sure where she was at. She was very concerned. It was very unsettling for her. It's important for you to talk to someone about it, to bring the family in on it. I felt so much better after my son told me Mom, I don't want you to worry or be afraid. I'll be there for you, and we'll figure it out. When something feels different, it could be Alzheimer's. Now is the time to talk. Visit alz.org slash ourstories to learn more. A message from the Alzheimer's Association and the Ad Council. Through the years, you've really kept up with the times. You're on social media. Like, like, dislike, block. Maintained your health? 10,000 steps. I'm a beast. You even programmed your own smart home. In 10 minutes, remind me that I'm a genius. In 10 minutes, I'll remind you that you're a genius. If you can do all that, you can definitely save for retirement. Just go to aceyourretirement.org, a free online tool sponsored by AARP that can help you get on track with your retirement savings no matter your age. At aceyourretirement.org, you'll meet Avo, the friendly digital retirement coach. And in just three minutes, get personalized recommendations to help boost your retirement savings. They're easy to understand and work with your lifestyle. It's quick, easy, and free. Plus, it's brought to you by AARP, so you know they got your back. You are a genius. Take charge of your retirement. Go to aceyourretirement.org now. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council. Recently on Adams on Agriculture. Happy to have with us the new president of the National Association of Conservation Districts, Michael Crowder. It'll be interesting to see where we go with conservation, with this new push, with climate policies and things like that. What are your goals? What are your priorities for this coming year? One of my big goals is climate change. As far as where the new administration is going with climate change, how is it going to affect farmers, ranchers, foresters? We want to make sure that we represent those producers in the right way with make sure the upcoming farm bill will have those issues that's best in mind for for producers. So that's where I see climate change coming. There's also a part of that is food security and insecurity. We all know that 2020 was a hard year and some of our products didn't get to market and if we have food security you know it that's national security so that's important to all producers is that we have free-flowing markets for the information important to rural america join us on adams on agriculture 
Adams on Agriculture prides itself on bringing top leaders in the egg industry right to your radio speakers. AOA wants to continue that conversation right to your fingertips. Follow AOA on Twitter at AOA underscore talk show and Mike Adams himself at the handle Mike Adams Egg. You will receive real-time highlights of the show and keep up with which convention or industry meeting AOA is attending. That's AOA underscore talk show and Mike Adams Egg. We hope to see you online. Join us every Tuesday for Around the Table, brought to you by CHS, as we examine how the modern cooperative system solves today's biggest challenges. We'll be talking to CHS experts and farmers and ranchers just like you, and we'll learn how cooperatives apply innovation and technology to help co-op owners get more value every day. So join us for Around the Table every Tuesday, or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. Well, it took over a year, but EPA finally says they will support the Tenth Circuit Court's ruling on small refinery exemptions to the RFS. Here with reaction is Kurt Kabarik, Vice President, Federal Affairs for the National Biodiesel Board. Kurt, better late than never, I guess. That's absolutely right, Mike. Glad to be with you. Uh, you're exactly right. It took more than a year. Uh, we did get some sense that this was the direction that EPA uh, was heading under this new administration. And we're, we're very pleased to see this uh, decision come out on Monday. Now, this, this decision probably doesn't have a, a significant tangible impact in terms of the, the court, the, the legal process. Uh, the Supreme Court is still going to take this up, um, I believe, in the next couple months with the decision by this summer. Uh, but this is, a, this is a strong signal from the Biden administration that kind of the, the days of using small refiner exemptions to undermine obligations and the, the, the mandated levels of renewable fuels uh, are over, which is, a, which is a strong signal in itself. And I think regardless of how the Supreme Court decision comes out later this year, um, the, the, the use of SREs by EPA um, is clearly going to be reined in by, by this administration. I said yesterday that this is obviously a change in direction for this EPA under the Biden administration as opposed to what we saw under the Trump administration when it comes to biofuels. But the real test, I think, will be what direction do they go on their climate policies and are they going to go all in on EVs and, and leave out biofuels or will they have a significant role and acknowledge the significant role biofuels can play? I mean, to me, that's still the big test. We have to wait and see what they do. There's no doubt about that. We've we've been advocating with uh, the the incoming administration that the renewable fuel standard is one tool that this this administration has to reduce carbon from uh, the transportation supply. Monday's announcement was a step in the right direction, but there are another uh, a whole series of opportunities. Uh, you see, Gina McCarthy is in the in the White House um, uh, climate director. She's made comments about uh, the ability of the federal government to send signals and purchases of, of electric vehicles. We want to impress upon them that there are a whole host of, of ways to reduce carbon 
uh, from the transportation supply. Electric vehicles is certainly one of them. But at least for uh, the diesel uh, pool, there are a lot of areas that are going to be very difficult to decarbonize. So we, we want to ensure that this administration recognizes what uh, biodiesel and renewable diesel have to offer, bring to the table in terms of carbon reduction. And I think once we are able to have that kind of science-based conversation, I can't imagine this administration would not embrace what uh, biofuels has to offer in terms of, of carbon reduction. And one very tangible uh, way that the administration can demonstrate that is we've we've rejoined the Paris Climate Accord, and uh, the administration has announced that they plan to put forward their their uh, contribution to carbon reductions that they're going to bring to the table at that at that uh, part of that uh, agreement. Last time around, the Obama administration did not include carbon savings or reductions as a result of biofuels. This would be another clear signal. Uh, if they were to include carbon reductions attributed to the use of biofuels, would signal their intent. They they see biofuels as part of the solution and and a key component of their uh, climate strategy. And that decision bio is diesel. To be coming up here in in April, mid mid April. So that's the timeline for that. The biodiesel segment of this is significant. I mean, you're ready to go right now. That's right. In fact, last year we, we, we reached a milestone, uh, just under 3 billion gallons of biodiesel market, about 2.4 billion of that produced here in the United States. Uh, we hope to double the industry by 2030. There are, no, there are very limited uh, infrastructure con- constraints to our fuel. There's no modification to engines necessary. It's just a matter of sending the market signals that uh, there is additional demand, there's, there's additional need for low-carbon fuels, and and our folks can do it. Yeah, uh, I you know you made a key point with all this talk about electric vehicles. There's a place in the market for for several uh, different energy sources. Uh, I, I've talked about this before. The diversity that's needed uh, in in our food production, in our energy production, it's it doesn't have to be all or none. And uh, to to ignore something that's already in place now makes no sense. When you can, uh, it's the quickest way to achieve these goals that they say they want to achieve. You're exactly right, and and people don't have to take my word for it or your word for it. We have a perfect example that demonstrates this: the state of California. They've enacted some of the most progressive uh, decarbonization policies in the world in the state of California. Since 2011, their low-carbon fuel standard has has meant to drive carbon out of their transportation supply. The, the framers of that legislation, I imagine, uh, sought electric vehicles as a solution. The, the, but the facts play out differently. Uh, the easiest way to decarbonize California's fuel, they've learned, is through biofuels. Biomass, biodiesel and renewable diesel currently make up 45% uh, of the credits generated under their program. Biofuels in total is about 70%. In fact, if you were to fill up with a, a, a tank of diesel fuel in California, each gallon has a, on average 22% renewable content. And it's because they took the approach of technology neutral. Their motivation was to remove carbon from transportation fuels. The easiest, fastest, and most effective way to do that is through biofuels. Now, we're, we're, not, we're not saying that there's not a place for EVs, as you said, but it's going to take all of the above to, to do what they want, and there are 
current day benefits to reducing carbon through a technology that you can put in tanks today rather than waiting for 10 or 15 or 50 years to electrify uh, long haul trucking or construction equipment. Well, uh, a lot of opportunity here. I feel the uh, I feel the optimism again that we had a year ago. We thought it was going to be a big year last year, and we know what happened. But th- this year, it's starting to feel like, okay, maybe that door is opening again. Let's hope we can get through it. Kurt, thank you very much. Good to talk with you. Glad to be with you, Mike. Kurt Kavarik, Vice President, Federal Affairs for the National Biodiesel Board. That does it for today. I hope you'll join us again tomorrow right here on AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world.